Welcome to Node Worthy, the official podcast of Technode.com, where each week we choose a few stories and uh, talk a little bit more about them. This week we're looking at uh, October travel. Both uh, uh, WeChat and Alipay uh, issued reports about uh, travel um, over the national um, national holiday Golden Week. So looking at where people went and what they were spending money on. And then we're also going to be looking a little bit at uh, the sharing economy. Uh, Frank wrote a great piece about the BRICS Sharing Economy Summit. We'll go into a little bit more detail about that in just a little bit. But first, let's take a look at where people were traveling. So, so Eva, so you, you wrote a story about the, the WeChat travel report. So what, what was it about and what were some of the, uh, the interesting, interesting findings? Yes, John. So um, the national holiday is the longest holiday that Chinese people can get. And so uh, WeChat, interestingly, they uh, with their WeChat payment, they uh, kind of analyze how Chinese people are spending their money uh, using WeChat Pay. So uh, they discovered where they were traveling to, what, where they spend money and uh, things like that. So um, yeah, it, uh, in the report has some interesting um, insight that it provided. Uh, interestingly, this year, um, Thailand was the top kind of... Uh, uh, destination for countries and Hong Kong uh, was main destination for shopping. So, so we could see like how the um, their their favorite um, destinations are changing. So, um, to analyze like by last year, South Korea was one of the countries uh, top destination for Chinese people to spend on uh, cosmetics and and to go shopping. But but this year it, it changed because of uh, South Korea's uh, political right. uh, situation with China. So, um, zip trips, zip trip actually actually kind of um, predicted that Thailand, South Korea, and, and Japan uh, will be will be changed to Thailand, Singapore, and Japan. Mm. But but uh, in fact, in this in this trip, in this um, national holiday, then Hong Kong was mentioned, um, and then followed by yeah uh, Thailand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was interesting. So looking looking at look breaking it down by city. Uh, number one was Hong Kong. Number two was Macau, and number three was was Bangkok. And so, I mean, do you think do you think that if there weren't political tensions between China and South Korea, that that Chinese people would still that that South Korea would still be a top destination, or do you think that maybe just um, the tastes are changing a little bit? I think it's uh, mainly due the political situation because if you see the WeChat payment um, was where where the WeChat payment was most used. It was um, Hong Kong. Thailand and then South Korea. So you can see that still people are willing to pay for uh, South Korean products, but due to the political situation, they kind of feel kind of, uh, well, they really care about like how others see uh, Chinese people. So so in that sense, they kind of um, try to travel other countries for their spending. Yeah, so I, I kind of see it as a political issue. Yeah, that's interesting. And so Eva, you're, you're, you're actually from South Korea. And I'm curious. I mean, like, what what is the government doing? Because you know tourism and especially Chinese spending. That's that's you know Chinese people. They, they historically they've spent a lot of money in South Korea. Are they are they doing anything to to keep Chinese Chinese people to to keep coming? We kind of. Um, they kind of try to develop uh, strategies that is not so directly pushing uh, Chinese people to spend on their uh, product. They kind of um, kind of find other kind of indirect ways to market their product. So and they are also like being long term, trying to trying to put in like long term strategy on their uh, moves. So that's that's the strategy they're taking. Actually, this happened with Japan in 2011 when China and Japan had some political issues, and so for that year, all the 
Japanese companies had a really big hit in their their sales, and we're like seeing that example. We still believe that like after these issues, it will get better. Yeah, afterwards. Mm. Mm, that's interesting. Um, yeah. so so but looking looking at uh, the looking going back to the report again. I mean, so what what are some of the insights for for companies or or brands to make the best use of of holiday seasons of Chinese holidays? So uh, as for as for companies, I would suggest two things. The first is the make use of the red pocket. So as you can see in this uh, holiday season, six point three billion red pocket were sent, and companies can use these marketing strategies to send out hongbao so that they can kind of not uh, mingle into Chinese culture. And secondly, um, if you see the WeChat calls made during the national holiday, uh, post sixties calling post nineties and uh, vice versa was the most uh, WeChat calls made during that time. So you can you can kind of uh, market words post nineties like they they might be thinking what to buy for their parents president the national holiday and also the mid autumn holiday so you can kind of uh, market your product that way so those are two questions i would i uh, those are two kind of uh, insights that you can derive from the report yeah well, that's interesting all right well, well eva thanks thanks so much um and so so rita wrote it wrote a piece uh, a similar piece um but coming from from alipay so it looks like um from from their report that their overseas alipay's overseas in-store transactions grew by eight times uh this 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 past week so so rita is that a sign of victory for for alipay um i would say it's still too early to conclude whether it's a success um in fact both alipaba and, uh, and wechat pay uh, the, the have been pushing really hard in overseas expansion and they're competing neck to neck and um, at this stage it's hard to say who who's a winner and the surging um, transactions uh, is mostly a natural result from the rising number of merchandisers that have signed up or countries that have been partnered up with um, Alibaba. And in terms of territory, Alibaba leads uh, slightly ahead with 30 countries, uh, whereas WeChat Pays is available in 13. Um, but in the long run, the, the bottom line is they neither can do this independently and they face strict uh, financial regulations in local countries. So, so, so they have to find um, local payment partners if they want to succeed. Yeah. And so obviously, so, so local local payment partners is, is a big, big deal. Um, but then what, what else are, um, or is Alipay doing to attract users? Yeah. So they have um, come up with a lot of EQ points um, to attract Chinese uh, consumers and the report shows that um, Chinese consumers use a total of 1.2 million EQ points uh, during the national holiday. And Hong Kong, as uh, Eva pointed out, uh, as a top destination, that's where most of the EQ points were redeemed. And um, something that they haven't been doing so well is training uh, local uh, merchandisers to to use their system. Um, so QR code, although it's very popular in China, um, it's not so overseas. And uh, so, for instance, in Japan, uh, tourists have reported that the, the staff, um, the convenience store staff, don't know how to use uh, the QR code, so they fail to process with uh, Alipay. Yeah, that's, that, I think that's that, that's one of the big things. I mean, because you look at the domestic environment, and you know, at this point, we we all live here, and we're very used to QR codes. It's very natural for us to you know whip out uh, WeChat or or um, Alipay and present our, our QR code to to pay for something. But QR codes really haven't taken off. As, as much in the rest of the world 
Um, but it is kind of funny that that they would that a, a store in Japan would accept it, but then not not necessarily know how to use it. Um, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if if you know more stores in in Japan just didn't really accept it. And, and so I I find it super interesting that both Alipay and WeChat saw. Um, such such so much usage in Hong Kong. When I was there uh, over the summer for for a conference, um, I could not use WeChat. Uh, it's only recently that actually WeChat is is actually usable in in, in Hong Kong. Um, and you could go to like a Seven Eleven or something and top up your WeChat balance there, but you could not actually use it use it to pay for anything. Right, right. And Alipay has, uh, on the other hand, pushed really hard into the Hong Kong market and. Uh, some people observe that because uh, WeChat Pay comes with WeChat, which is the, the social network, um, and Hong Kong people sometimes have a um, has a negative uh, reaction uh, towards mainland Chinese apps. Uh, so they use Line and, and WhatsApp mostly. So Alipay, in that sense, have a slight advantage over WeChat Pay in pushing into Hong Kong. And Alibaba actually uh, partnered up with the Hong Kong Mongo uh, CK Hutchison um, to to further their Hong Kong localization. Yeah, and I, I think it's 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 a point to be repeated. Um, Alipay, the biggest difference in Alipay and WeChat is that Alipay is not a social network. They've tried to implement social network-like functions before to um, sometimes hilarious uh, failure but um, in general you know they, they have not been very successful with their with their social um, offerings whereas WeChat is one of those super apps where um, you could potentially you know conduct almost all of your business take care of any important transactions all through WeChat uh, in, in, and it's also a social a social network platform so so two two very different um, kind of entry points into into actual consumer use well, well but Rita thank you thank you so much for for um, for telling us a little bit about what what Alipay is is up to we mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, uh, Frank went to a, uh, a BRICS sharing economy summit um, in, in in September, and uh, he finally got around to to writing the, the the piece about it. And Frank, I have to admit, when I when I first read it, um, I was actually really surprised by some by the way that some people were, were were talking about the sharing economy. You know, it seems that that China in general is taking the sharing economy much more seriously than any other country. So for them, it's not just you know, renting a bike or, or, you know, calling a car or renting a power bank, it is potentially, you know, the, the structure of their China's future economy. Well, yes. So I, I was a little bit surprised myself at um, just how seriously things are being taken because um, earlier in September, there'd been the BRICS forum in Xiamen. Um, and so this was the sort of follow-up event to that, really, which I, I think the fact that this event even existed shows how seriously it's, it's being taken. And um, although I didn't really realize that before I went, I remember seeing the the description of the event and, you know, it's at the Grand Hyatt, which is the sort of opposite of the sharing economy. And, you know, it's all sorts of chandeliers and carpets. And, but then realizing that it's um, one of the only times when you get a direct um, account in terms of um, officials, politicians and um, academics, because usually at these events we hear from people who are in the sharing industry, um, but this time it was actually much more a much broader coverage of the um, sector because we got to hear from um, well, particularly the academics had a lot to say on it. And that and that's that's what I really liked about about your piece was because you you in in tech media you don't hear from academics very often, um, but in China you know there is a very strong uh, academic culture. You know there there is like the Ch- Chinese Academy of Sciences, the Chinese Academy of Social. Mm-hmm. 
social sciences um, and, and a few and a few other ones that are highly prestigious kind of uh, government run think tanks almost and and these people actually they have a pretty um, uh, they're, they're they're pretty influential when it comes when it comes to actual actual policy and what I've noticed is that what academics from from these think tanks are talking about ends up for the most part coming true a few years later and so what they're talking about now in terms of the sharing economy you know it's it's you know, I, I I really kind of I, I look at it and, and I I almost have to believe what they're saying well yeah but they they seem to have um particularly at this conference they seem to have much more of a vision um both for the sharing economy and for, for China and ha- the role China is going to play in the sharing economy um, as a global phenomenon. And um, so there were actually uh, various different academics um, there. There was um, Yang Weiguo, who's, well, there's some pretty long job titles here. So he's the Dean of the School of Labor and Human Resources at Renmin University of China. And he sort of spoke about it in slightly familiar political economic terms. He was talking about the allocation of resources and how everyone has two identities. Um, both as a consumer and as a worker. And he predicts um, a megatrend for society where there's a shift in um, people's, these sort of two sides to our um, identities, where at the moment the sharing economy is more about consumption and benefits consumers, but this is going to um, flip to being, well, maybe not flip, but it's going to be equally as important for workers as for consumers. Um, and he predicts that the sharing economy will be the only business model in the future and that um, it contains the actual essence of humanity. And he thinks that this is we've got to this stage in China because of central government help. And then if people are going to be shifting to doing more sort of gig economy jobs, um, which is certainly what we're seeing so far with the sharing economy, you know, people that might be a teacher during the day, but then in the evenings, weekends, they are driving a DD. Um, he seems to think that we're going to become much more flexible and choose what we want to do. But there's going to be um, the need for more central government help because we're, they'll need to ensure a sort of sufficient density of these jobs. If people are starting to rely on these smaller, flexible jobs, it's only going to work if there's enough of them to keep them alive. And then another thing that we have in China is that the different provinces have their own their own governments. And up until fairly recently, people had a lot of their um, their welfare provided by their their employers or their work units, as it used to be, um, including things like pensions. But um, Yang Weiguo said at this conference that local governments are going to have to probably step up in terms of support, um, in terms of welfare, because people aren't going to be paying enough into an individual employer. And when he said this at the conference, he actually got um, a round of applause from the audience. Um, so that, that obviously struck a chord with a lot of the people who were there to to hear about the future of the sharing economy. Yeah, I think the sharing economy has a lot of potential for uh, for positive impact, um, but it also has the potential for for negative impact as well. And so that that really kind of and especially when it comes to welfare and and the role of the state with um, you know social 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 services and things like the state really does is going to have to step in to to take care of some of some of these things where if if people are 
are not, you know, official full-time employees, then someone needs mm -hmm. to, as you say, pay for insurance, but also, you know, uh, contribute to the social security system and, and things like that. So mechanisms like that are super important. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I find it fascinating because this is kind of a theme that I've been I've been thinking about for, for the last week or so, is that, you know, the, the government, they are perhaps the most tech-savvy government in the entire world in the sense that they are very keen on, on using technology to to solve problems, uh, whether it's a governance problem, whether, whether it's uh, an employment problem, or whether it's, you know, maybe even a medical uh, problem, mm -hmm. that it's it's really interesting to see that we're, we are seeing politicians and academics and of course of course entrepreneurs really pushing pushing this model and saying that this is going to be you know the the, the future of of the Chinese economy well yeah that, that's right there, there was um, another academic there um, called Xue Jiafeng who's a professor at the China Center for Economic Research and he thinks that the fact that China has come so far in terms of the developing its sharing economy is because of the structure of the government. Um, and it's allowed this um, the development of the platform. So various people at the um, conference were talking about the sharing economy as actually the core of it being the platform. So these um, companies such as DD have put tens of billions of dollars into developing these platforms for you know, getting cars in the right places. But um, this particular professor was comparing the Chinese central government to Western governments and the fact that the Chinese government has had oversight over these companies um, means these companies have benefited, benefited from it. So instead of um, the government trying to sort of oversee all the individual transactions going on, they're sort of overseeing the whole platform instead. And um, this professor, Professor Shui, even said that um, he's very specific and he said um, this way of doing it works a lot better than Western parliamentary systems, which are too rigid to adapt to these new platforms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, with, with the pace of change, you know, governments have to have to keep up um, as well. But um, but Frank, you know, thank you. Thank you so much for for um, telling us a little bit more about kind of what's happening in the theoretical space and the policy space around the sharing economy. But that's that's all the time we have for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really, really appreciate it if you took the time to leave us a review in iTunes. Uh, it's a great way to show your support. You know, iTunes, the way it works is that it's only it's only going to surface as recommendations, um, podcasts and content that other people have found uh, useful or, or content that they have enjoyed. And the best way to show that you enjoyed it, the best way to show your support is to leave a review on iTunes. Um, and if it's too much trouble and you're on Overcast, you can just press the star button uh, and that'll recommend it inside of Overcast. Or if you're in Pocket Cast, you can press the star button there as well. <laughs>